Hi guys, Aurora James here, founder of Brother Valleys, and you're listening to the very first episode of In Progress Season 2. First off, I just want to say how thrilled I am to be hosting the second season of this very special podcast. If you've listened before, you already know that In Progress, brought to you by Girlboss Radio in partnership with our luggage genius friends at Toomey, is all about getting really real when it comes to the unexpected twists and heart-wrenching turns we all have to navigate in our respective journeys. We're bringing together some of the brightest, most inspiring entrepreneurs and thought leaders out there, and each episode is packed with advice and insights you are not going to hear anywhere else. Right now, we're about to kick things off with a very special guest. Her name is Melanie Elturk. If you don't know Melanie, you're about to get to know her. She's a founder of Hot Hijab, a purveyor of chic hijabs and accessories that's literally changing the game for hijab-wearing women everywhere. The thing you don't know is, Melanie's path to becoming an entrepreneur wasn't what she'd initially planned on. In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into Melanie's childhood in Detroit and her intensely rigorous academic upbringing. We'll talk about how she finished college in three years, went on to be a civil rights attorney, and then left it all behind to start a career in fashion. Stay tuned. Hi, Melanie. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today on In Progress. Thank you for having me. This is so awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited to sit down and talk with you today. Me too. So you probably know in In Progress, we kind of look at people's origin stories and figure out how those led into the amazing stuff that they're doing today. So I kind of just want to understand from you how it all started. Where Where were you born? Sure. I was, I was born in Detroit. Okay. So it's where I'm from. My parents and siblings lived in Detroit proper at the time. Uh, and then we moved out to the suburbs not too long after I was born, a few years afterwards. Cool. And you went to school and everything in Detroit also? No. So by the time I was going to school, I was we were out in the suburbs. And um, I just went to public school all the way up until high school. But my high school was um, an IB like college prep school, all okay. IB school, very small. We had a class of 150 freshmen. And like by the time we graduated, there was only 90 of us. Okay, so you your high school was a college prep school. So by the time you were in high school, like even grade nine, you were like, I already know I'm going to college because I'm already preparing for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew I was going to college at like age five. You did? Yeah, yeah. Education in my household was a, a non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. And it was – it unlike other – girls I grew up with in my community where marriage was kind of pushed on them early. Uh-huh. My dad was like, don't even think about getting married until you get your degree. Really? Yeah. Don't even think about it. Where did that come from? Were they academics or what was the situation? They just knew that education was the key mm-hmm. to success right. and getting out of that that cycle. And not that, you know, my parents were in a poverty cycle, thankfully, but they were very cognizant that you needed that degree if you were going to be doing anything of value in America. Um, climbing up that ladder meant you needed to have those degrees under your belt. And my parents were both immigrants who came from – my dad immigrated in the 70s from Lebanon. Right. My mom came from the Philippines. They both met in college. Oh, wow. And for them, it was college that allowed them to get the 
advancements in their careers and be able to live the life that they did. Wow. I think it's so interesting because I talked to so many women who, you know, whose parents were immigrants. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, education ends up being this thing because it's like, it is almost like a golden ticket. 100%. 100%. And, and even, you know, like undergrad wasn't enough. It was, what are you going to do after that? What grad school are you going to go to? And what are you going to specialize in? And, you know, think about these things very early. Did you ever have a moment when you were like, I don't like school? No, I was a kid who hated summer. Really? Hated summer. <laughs> I hated being at home. I just wanted to be – I must. I was also very social and okay. people are what give me energy. Mm -hmm. And so I hated being at home with my brothers who were terrible to me. And, you know, I, I hated it. I just wanted yeah. to be back in school. I couldn't wait for the fall to come wow. so that I could just be back in school. I loved to learn. I loved the environment. I was the teacher's pet. I thrived in school. Oh, my gosh. Your parents must have loved you. <laughs> they must have been like, this is amazing. This is exactly what we wanted. She's school obsessed. Wow. Yeah. So by the time you were in law school, how old? I was 20 when I enrolled. Wow. So I, I graduated at 23. Wow. Yeah, I was the youngest kid in law school. I remember even they had events with alcohol. Not that I drink because I'm Muslim, but I was like, I'm not even legal. <laughs> right. You were like, I'm not supposed to be in here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But. Did you feel pressure at any point when you were doing all of this? No, I felt I was exactly where I should be. I did feel being so young in law school with these adults, like grown yeah. adults who had mortgages and homes. And I was this little 20-year-old kid living at home with my parents or my stepmom and my dad um, that I was in over my head. And I felt like they knew so much more than me. And what's funny is they looked at me like this whiz kid, like, dang, she's 20 years old in law school. It's really funny how people's perception, you know, is, but I did feel like I needed a lot more life experience to have done law school even better. Right. I did feel that way, but I didn't feel, I knew I was where I needed to be. And I was happy that I was getting it done at the, at so quickly. And then what happened? As soon as you graduated law school, then what? Were you like, now I'm going to like, I'm so fascinated by this because it's so <laughs> completely different than my life. So please go on. <laughs> so I was, I went to law school because I have always been incredibly passionate about social justice and civil rights. Okay. So race was an issue to me. Anytime it was brought up, my blood would boil. And I just, being a biracial kid, it was something that defined my identity, my childhood. It was so important to me. And my dad was also very, very intentional about exposing us to different communities within mm -hmm. Michigan. And so he'd take us to downtown Detroit and make sure that we were integrated within the African-American community, the black Muslim community. That was very important to my dad because he didn't want us isolated in the suburbs with, you know, like the rich Muslims. Right. And so when I saw the vast difference between how our communities lived and the black Muslim community lived in Detroit – as somebody who, again, you know, oppression and, and social justice was so core to me, I went to law school knowing that I was going to do civil rights work. Mm. I knew right away I was not there to do corporate law or it was all just public work. 
Um, so what I did in law school, I, I worked for the NAACP and the Michigan Department of Civil Rights in a private civil rights litigation firm. And my first job out of law school was with the Council on American Islamic Relations, so CARE, wow. Michigan. Yeah. I was a staff attorney and, you know, worked on religious accommodation and and uh, defended women who in court were forced to take off hijab, things like that. Right. So post-law school, that was my life, was focusing on these issues. And then I got married. So I, I got engaged and married within the same year that I started at CARE. And I moved to Chicago, and then that's when we started our business. Got it. Yeah. Let me take it back for one second. So when you were younger, you were always really conscious of, like, civil rights issues. You know, it's funny. I didn't even know what civil rights meant until I was in college applying for law school. Right. I just knew that there were people who were treated differently and that people cared a lot about race. When I was in third grade, there was this like real defining moment when I was exiting the lunchroom and uh, going out for recess. And I threw my lunchbox in the little bin and I went for the door. And as soon as I walked outside, there were two girls who were my friends in elementary school. And they said, you're not one of us because you're Arabic. And I was like, what? I, I didn't even know. Uh, it was the first time that somebody had said anything to me about race or where I'm from because I was such a proud Muslim and Arab and Asian. I was so proud of who I was because that's how my parents raised me. That was very unapologetic about my background. Right. I talked about it. I I was very proud. And so that was the first time that I was like, oh, this is a thing. Yeah, you got othered essentially for the first time. Yeah. yeah. And when that happened, I was like, No. I don't want anybody to ever feel like that, no matter what background they're from. And being in Detroit, the the community of people that for me was so apparent that were really suffering, and there was this huge divide, was the African-American community. And so that's why when I set out to go to law school, that was the community I wanted to focus on and really, really understand how I could help and what I could do with my law degree to help within that realm. When you were a kid, were there like early entrepreneurial like endeavors that you? 100. Okay, tell me what those were. So, I mean, as early as being in elementary school and I was drawing pictures and my dad was like, that's cool, that's great. You should, you should narrate these illustrations, bind it into a book and then sell it to the neighbors. And I was like, what? I just want to draw. I was like, that wasn't in my head at all. But then I got older and I used to make stationery out of like stamps and glitter glue. And my dad was like, these are really good. You should make a ton of them and then take them to school and sell them to your friends. Wow. Um, so he really encouraged you. Big time, big time. I'd say my biggest endeavor was high school when I was really into bead making and I would make this beaded jewelry and he'd say, he was like, all right, get like 10 of your best samples, take them to school and sell them to your friends and then come home and then make them. Don't sell the samples. You need those. Come home and make them and give them to him, you know, give them, say it'll take me four days, whatever, and charge how much it, you know, factor in the cost of the beads and your time. And I was like, okay. And wow. I made a ton of money doing that <laughs> in high school. That was my hustle because I didn't have a job. I didn't really get an allowance, but, like, I was always very fashion conscious, and that paid for my wardrobe, essentially. Wow. So he basically taught you 
how to have your first fashion business. 100%. My dad, he also owned his own consulting company himself. So he's an engineer and he went off on his own because he was like, I could, be ma- I could be doing this on my own right. and making way more money, right. and, which is what he did. It also sounds like you have always been really creative. Yes, it's in my, it's in my blood. Like stamps and glitter glue. Like I was like, yes, this sounds great. You know, yeah. I've always had that bone in my body. Wow. And at no point were you ever like, maybe I should work in fashion. You're always like, just no. legal. No. And that was really my dad, actually. So I told my dad in high school, I said, I want to go to art school. And he was like, that's oh, wow. cute. Wow. So you had a moment. You had a moment of like semi descent. 100%. I, I was really, really keen on going to art school. Wow. Yeah. And even when I was a younger kid, my dad would say, what do you want to do? And I'd say, I want to be a teacher. And when I really thought about that, it wasn't because I wanted to educate. It's because I wanted to decorate the room. Because <laughs> in the summer, I would go to my teacher's classrooms and help them decorate before the school year started. Really? Yeah. In elementary school, I did it every year. It was just, it brought me so much joy to go in and cut those letters out of those big, huge machines and tack them up onto the walls. And I loved that. And the borders. And it was so cool. How did he feel when you said he wanted to be a teacher? He loved that. He did? Yeah, he loved that. Um, When I got to high school and I told him I wanted to go to art school, it wasn't because my dad doesn't value the arts. My dad's a musician. He's now a full-time imam, which is like a priest in in our faith. Uh, But he was in a band for a long time. I mean, that bone runs through his body as well, obviously. But he saw in me an intellect that he thought would – he knew that I needed to sharpen. And if I went to art school, I might lose it. And so he said, you can do art anytime. You can always pursue arts. But at this time in your life and at this age, you need to do something more. And he said, think about law school. So I said, okay. I had never thought about law school. And in our high school, we had what's called enrichment weeks where you shadow different professionals. And so we had a law enrichment week where throughout the week we visited judges, the FBI, private practitioners, all sorts of legal jobs. By the end of that week, I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. And I'm so happy my dad pushed me in that direction because it has served me so well. And here I am. I still get to do the arts. So it's amazing. So you then got married. I got married. And moved. That's right. And how did things change? My husband and I, we wanted to live abroad. That was a plan. Okay. Where where were you thinking? We were thinking Egypt. My husband is Egyptian. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to study at Al-Azhar, which is one of the oldest um, educational institutions in the world. I wanted to study um, law and further my education. And um, the revolution happened in Egypt, which kind of put a damper on all your plans. (laughs) And then my husband got this offer. It was always looming and present to go to Dubai. And I was like, let's do this. So knowing that I wasn't going to be in Chicago for too long, I didn't take the bar exam. I did, you know, odd jobs here and there, but I wasn't working as a full-time attorney anymore. So I had time on my hands. Mm -hmm. And that's when my husband actually is the one who had the idea for this company. So what was the initial idea? You said your husband was the one who yeah, concepted it. He was. He came home one day from work, and I'll never forget, he came through, and he's like, dude, I have the best idea. And I was like, okay. He's like, we should start a Muslim fashion brand. And I was like, you're crazy. 
that's not going to work. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, are you serious? This is pre-Instagram. This is pre-hijabi bloggers. This is when it was considered an oxymoron to say Muslim and fashion in the same breath. Right. Because the hijab is a religious garment Mm -hmm. and you don't mix it with fashion. That was the sentiment at the time back in 2009. Things have changed a lot since then. But at that time, I was like, dude, I don't know. And so for me, I was thinking about it from the lens of my community and what would they say. And from my husband, he was thinking about it from a very practical point of view, which is you wear the hijab every day. You need the clothing to go along with it. You also need the hijabs that make you feel confident and that align with your American aesthetic. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Because it is really hard, for example, as a Muslim woman who observes the hijab to, let's say, go to a wedding and not look like the mother of the bride because you have to wear that jacket on top of, you know, the dress. You want to still look youthful and and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And where were the options? They really hardly existed. And so I thought, all right, this is going to ruffle some feathers, but let's do it. Wow. So what was the very first thing that you made? So we set out to we, – we were in over our heads. We didn't know what we were doing. I'm, I'm not in fashion. Of course, but that's amazing. It only ever works if you're completely naive about what <laughs> you're getting into. Right, because, again, those those assumptions and those restrictions aren't there yeah. in terms of what's done in the industry because I don't know what's done in the industry. I just right. did it. So we said, all right, we're going to do a clothing line. And that's how we started was we wanted to be a, a clothing brand. Wow. Such a massive undertaking. So massive. We were so in over our head that when we looked into it, we first looked into wholesaling clothes that were modest and then reselling them. Okay. So that's when we said, all right, so we're going to have to do this in-house. So what we did was I put out a Craigslist ad mm-hmm. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And they said, you I know, love Craigslist. Like, oh, Everything. It's everything. It's everything. It's so good. People don't realize, like, that is the untapped resource of life. 100%. Okay, go on. And I said, you know, we're this up-and-coming fashion brand in downtown Chicago, and I'm looking for assistant designer. I got interviews lined up for two days at this, you know, like, Argo Tea in the West Loop. (laughs) And I interviewed girls for two days. And in that process, I asked every single girl every question I had about how to do this. What's the process from start to finish, from the initial iteration of the design until the final product that's ready to sell. Mm -hmm. And at the end of those two days, I had a very clear understanding of the steps and how to do it. Mm -hmm. But one thing that came very clear as we were setting the timeline was we're not going to make this fall deadline. Right. So what we did was I said, you know what? I wear vintage scarves as hijabs. And whenever I wear them, people are asking me where I got them from. And I tell them they're vintage. And they're like, oh, you know, I'm okay, great. How's that going to help me? Mm -hmm. So I said, let me go and source a ton of vintage scarves, sell them as hijabs, and we'll launch with that. So at least there's something. Beautiful. That people can come to the website and buy while we continue this process of putting out the clothing line. So that's how we launched. And that first day, I think we had 30 vintage scarves. By the first day, almost all of them were sold out. By the next day, like the last couple stragglers were gone. Wow. Okay, so you found all of these vintage scarves. I absolutely love vintage. 
So that makes me so happy, you know. <laughs> and so you were selling all those. They sold out. So you made a website. Was it like a basic website? Yeah. I mean, it was very clean. That was what we – aesthetically, we were so concerned that it looked it looked very professional, high-end. Yeah. Because unfortunately, there is an assumption in our community that Muslim-owned and operated businesses, for whatever reason, are unprofessional. Mm-hmm. As just within our community, it's a stigma that I'm trying to fight. Mm-hmm. So I, at every touch point, wanted to make sure that the experience the customer had was elevated than what they know from our community and outside even. Right. And I did everything I could to make sure it was always clean and professional and just looked very high-end. Yeah. When I first launched the Brother Valley's website, I used to get emails from people and they would be like, are you actually going to sell me these shoes and send them if I buy them or is this a Nigerian internet scam? Oh, my God. All the time. I used to get that at least once a week. Someone would be like, is this an African scam? I saw something like this on Dateline. (laughs) Oh, no. And I was like, oh, Oh, my gosh. People don't really think about the stigmas that you have to overcome Mm -hmm. just to sell a product. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to me that you were saying that that's an issue within your your community of just even valuing each other's Mm -hmm. businesses. Mm -hmm. And I think that that exists in a lot of minority communities. Mm -hmm. And I think it's largely in part of the fact that like when we see like successful businesses and successful business owners historically they have not looked like you or I right you know and so it's like oh there must be something wrong like this isn't it just this is just something's weird Mm -hmm. you know something's Mm -hmm. off like Mm -hmm. is this actually legit you know (laughs) seriously and what about your community because you had some anxiety about how they would receive it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what happened we, in the beginning, we never used models okay, because that also was kind of taboo. Like, Yeah, I get it. You know, you're not supposed to use – I mean, can we model as Muslim women? Mm-hmm. And it, it was such a gray area. My God, the world is so different now. So different. All the hijabs were on a dress form, like a mannequin. Wow. And it was draped beautifully in a way that you could kind of get a feel of what it would look like on your head. So I, I was very – intentional and smart about the way we presented everything to mitigate any pushback. Mm -hmm. I was trying to be as sensitive as I could. And also being a very spiritual and religious person, I wanted to make sure that I was doing right by my own faith and that God at every step of the way was pleased with me and what I was doing and keeping my intentions pure to provide this product that women really need, but not overstep my boundaries in a way that wasn't in line with my my religious values. I'm like so incredibly inspired by like the whole idea of like faith-based fashion brands. You know what I mean? Because you're really like hitting it's really about like speaking directly to your customer and like truly making women feel like at their best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you know, it's complicated because yeah. it's a religious garment. Yeah. And you want to do right by it. Um, and so I, I believe that my spiritual health dictates the health of my brand and that I have to be very strong in my convictions and be very close to God so that I feel that he's with me as I'm doing this work and that he's helping me further the work that we're doing. 
And how do you define your current role? Like, do you consider yourself a creative director? Do you consider yourself the CEO? I'm 100% the CEO, and I consider myself the leader of this company. And I am leading right now 17 people to build what will become a global hijab brand. Right now, we're the leading U.S. hijab brand, but there isn't a single brand that exists globally Mm. um, that has penetrated all the global markets. There are a lot of great brands that exist in specific regions, Mm -hmm. but I have a very grand vision for what we're building. And so as the CEO, you know, I'm the visionary that looks 10, 5, 10, 20 years ahead, but I also have to work microscopically within two-week sprints as well. Right. Um, and so I, my role as CEO changes every, I'd say, like six months, where for so many years I was just an operator, and I just worked day in, day out. I did all the things that we have 17 people to do. My husband and I did. We split up that work. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it was much smaller scale, which is why we had to hire people to do it on this larger scale where we are now. But because I've done all those jobs, I know how to manage them. I've done it. Right. I know how much time it takes. Mm -hmm. I know what's involved. So I can effectively manage them and make sure that everybody is where they need to be. I think that it's really great that you called that out, that you've done all of those jobs, because I think even when I talk to a lot of young women, they're like, oh, I want to start my business, but I don't have any money to like hire all the people that I need. And it's like, you're the only person that you need. That's right. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. and it's the best way to figure out how to run a business is by doing it yourself from the ground up. Mm -hmm. You know, I, yeah, it's, that's everything. Yeah. I can see how it'd be intimidating if you're alone. Because I had my husband and we have such great complementary strengths where I'm the creative and he's more process-driven and ops. Having that partner with you yeah. is amazing. So I would say, yes, build it build it from the ground up yourself, yeah. but also find a co-founder. Yeah. I Sometimes I have moments where I'm like, oh, my gosh, I wish that I had a partner. You know, I wish I had a co-founder. But I d- can also say that, like, my friends were, like, my other co-founders at the time, yeah, you know, and you can always sort of like lean on your peers. I remember being like, guys, like, where do I get shipping boxes, you know? And they were all like assistants at like other fashion brands at the time. And like, they were like sending me links. One of them was like, there's something called a U-line. <laughs> and I was like, oh, rad. Like, I'm going to go check that out, you know? So I don't know. It's really such, it's so interesting how people have all of these different journeys. Yeah. All right, everyone, time for a quick break for an important announcement. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with our friends at Tumi. Yes, if you are thinking of slick, sophisticated luggage and bags in beautiful leather or nylon designs, you are thinking of the right Tumi, my friend. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about where we come from and how our unique origin stories help shape who we are, and also how they shape our sense of purpose and perspective in the world. We're covering a lot of ground. And sorting through our own origin story takes a lot of reflecting and being fully present. You know what helps being more focused and present? When you're not stressing out over little things that can clog up your plans. Which brings me back to Tumi. Tumi's lines of luggage, briefcases, and handbags are the perfect combination of style, function, and craftsmanship. You can count on Tumi for slick designs and a streamlined functionality that withstands the trends. So you know you're making a good investment that will help you live your life in an uncomplicated way. And that means you can get to where you're going fast and free from frustration. 
To find out more about how Toomey is perfecting the journey, just go to Toomey.com. There, you'll be able to see exactly what I'm talking about. Again, that's Toomey.com, T-U-M-I.com. Have you had any like major mountains in this journey, times that you were like, I don't know if my business is going to get past this. I don't know if I'm going to get past this. Like, What have been the roadblocks for you? Yes. <laughs> I think the toughest time in our company was when we decided to quit our jobs. Well, we left behind very financially secure jobs mm-hmm. to come here and live in this uncertainty for months. And it was, my God, like when I think back to that year, I had family members who like wanted to come visit me in New York, like were here or like book tickets. I was like, you got to cancel them. I don't have time for you. Wow. I feel really bad about it today. But in the moment, that stress and anxiety takes over you that you can think of nobody else but yourself and your business. Right. Because every single second that's wasted is one second that could have led you somewhere that will take you out of this stress and anxiety. Like mm-hmm. we knew that we needed to raise a round. Mm-hmm. And it took about eight months until we got our first yes. And then once that first yes came in, that gave us a confidence and momentum that we were able to finish out the rest of that half a million round mm-hmm. within probably the next like six months, I'd say. It still took a hell of a long time, don't get me wrong. Right. But that was the most stressful time in our business for sure. It was such a strain on our marriage, on me mentally and emotionally and the uncertainty, living in the gray like that and not knowing what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Should Ahmed go and try and find a job at some marketing agency? Should I take the bar here? It was so uncertain. Um, but you had to go through that and live through that uncertainty to get – to give you that – to put that fire under you to make it. Yeah. People – only ever see like these major successes and all of these great gains and you never really get to see or know like what people had to give up and sacrifice to get there. And you know, thinking back, I wish that I had been more transparent about that journey. I think I was afraid of allowing people to see what a struggle it was. Yeah. The struggle is not luxury. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it was very different back then. Mm-hmm. You you cannot – and. that was not the vibe. You Mm -hmm. weren't like crying, you know, (laughs) being like, oh my God, like I, you know, even like for me, you know, when I went through like the CFTA Vogue Fashion Fund, it was a reality television show. And like what people didn't even know was that like me and like my boyfriend of six years were like completely breaking up. Like Mm -hmm. I had to live in that same apartment with him for a year after I won the fashion fund because I could not afford to move out on my own. Wow. That's crazy. You know, yeah. No one sees that. Mm-hmm. It's like you hear these rumors of like, oh, well, I heard people in New York like, you know, break up and still have to live together. Yeah, <laughs> me. <laughs> you know, and like that's not cute. That's yeah. not, that's not the, that's, and that's not, back then we didn't really think that like seeing people struggle was inspiring mm-hmm. because women weren't connecting in that way. Yeah, we saw it as failure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That was not part of the narrative. That's right. It was like everything's great and easy and all the wonderful things are coming to me. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and when you talk about starting a business and maintaining a business, growing and scaling a business, raising money, these are all incredibly complex ideas and situations. Yeah. And they can't really be deduced to like 140 characters or like, you know, an Instagram an Instagram caption. 
Agreed. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Do you ever miss being an attorney? All the time. Really? Yeah, I very... That was that turning point in my life. So I moved to Dubai with my husband. We moved all of our operations to Dubai, and I worked at the courts there. Um, Unfortunately, I couldn't do any civil rights work because there is no civil rights over there. (laughs) If you try and do any, like social good they will just kick you out of the country they they're not they don't want it wow so i worked as a law clerk for three judges and i loved it cuz the country is so young and new that i had so much power in terms of the precedent that i was setting with my the opinions that i was writing um that i loved it and that intellectual stimulation that is what my dad saw in me at such a young age and told me no, you're, you have way too much smarts in you to go to art school, go to law school for that reason. He saw it um, because there's an intellectual stimulation there that I miss all the time. It's, it's, a, it's a brain game of using what you know, taking the law, coming to a conclusion that you see fit and writing it out in a way that's cohesive and makes sense. And I love that challenge and that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't exercise those muscles as much as I did now in my mm-hmm. current role. So, yes, I really wow. miss it. Okay, so I have one big question. When you finally started this business, what did your dad say? He's always been so supportive of me and my viewpoint. And he also had a very, I think, specific image of who I would become, which Mm -hmm. was this civil rights leader and activist. And he saw me at the front lines on the ground. And I saw myself that way, too, for many years. That was to be me. That was my trajectory. Um, I had a mentor in law school who, I mean, she went undercover with like skinheads to, as a white woman, um, to understand the mindset while she was working with the Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, I, I was, I was so entrenched in this work. And so I think when, (laughs) when he first saw what I was doing and it was fashion and he only saw it as fashion, he didn't understand yet the greater mission. He was a little disappointed. Wow. And he said, listen, all this is fine. But you were created for something bigger. And the thing is, I knew that too, but he he didn't have the foresight yet to see what that thing was. So fast forward like years, years later, we're, we're here in New York, and The Gap had put out this ad where they used a hijabi in their ad, and they asked for one of our hijabs, which I thought was amazing. And it was this really cool ad, and it was on every single Gap storefront across the world. Wow. It was one of those first moments, too, where now it's become normalized, mm-hmm. and I don't even bat an eyelash now when I see a Muslim woman in an advertisement. It's really, it's still very cool. Yeah. But I'm, it's not like this moment where everyone's sharing it on social and it goes viral anymore. Right. So when that happened, I was so proud that it was one of our hijabs. And I sent a photo to my dad and I said, you know, when I first started this company, there were people in my family who laughed at me when I said, when they asked me, what's your motivation? What are your intentions? And I said, to make hijab mainstream. 
And they laughed in my face, <laughs> literally. Oh my and I told my dad, you know, when this person laughed at me, it put a fire under me. And he, and today, this beautiful hijab-wearing woman is in the storefront of every single gap all across the world. And I'm so grateful that I didn't let people deter me from this, inc this incredibly important work. Right. And my dad said, um, I still have it. He was like, you had the vision that none of us saw and the work you do is so important mm. and I'm so proud of you. And it was this really beautiful message where it was a full circle moment where he finally understood. <sighs> and I knew it would take time, yeah. but it, it, we got there and yeah. he's very proud of me today. And people approach him all the time. He's kind of like a bigger figure within our community in Michigan. And people approach him all the time and, you know, to talk about the work I'm doing. And he's he's incredibly proud. So it took time. Oh, my gosh, my heart. <laughs> it's those moments, right? Because sometimes when you go off the beaten path of what your parents thought was going to happen for you, it's re that's like so much pressure because you just don't – and especially you just don't want to disappoint them. That's it. You don't want to disappoint them. That's it. And it's like every step you're making, you're making with the hope that like this works out so that you just don't have to see them sad. That's right. That's exactly it. And I lived in that place for so long. Right. And it caused me so much pain because the only thing I want in the world is to please my parents. Yeah. My parents who instilled in me these values and taught me life and taught me right from wrong and all I can do is pay them back by making them proud. Right. And so it hurt for so long. And that moment was so, so gratifying. I just started crying. I was in the middle of New York City in front of that Gap store, and mm. I just sat there and cried as I read his message because mm. it meant so much. Oh, my gosh. I just want to say, too, that sometimes when people laugh at you – you kind of have to know, and it's hard to know at the time, but you kind of have to know that you're on to something because it means that minds have to be changed and that you've come up with an idea that people haven't thought about yet. Yeah. So how have things changed now, like, w with your business? Like, I know that landscape has changed so much. You were saying that, like, you didn't even know, like, if you could use a model and now, mm -hmm. like, Halima is on the cover of all these amazing magazines. Yeah. So, like, well, how does that feel? It's awesome. It's awesome because one of the reasons I started this was – so it's twofold. It's to normalize hijab within the mainstream community so that when the mainstream sees a woman in hijab, there's no longer this pause of whether it's apprehension or it's fear or it's looking down on us. Right. I wanted it – I want to educate people so that they as they see it more and more – they, ha they start to change the narrative in their mind of what hijab is and means. And secondly, within our own community to empower Muslim women who do wear hijab to feel comfortable and confident, not yeah. to lay their heads low, but to wear it with pride and to feel so, so privileged that they get to go out and represent this beautiful faith of ours. So that's always been the two cornerstones of my work with, and the brand is the conduit. Because my work is beyond the brand. My work is God's work, and that's what I'm set on earth to do, and is what yeah. I believe is my purpose and why I was put on earth. And so that's why I think it's awesome, because it's furthering this good work. Mm -hmm. 
And like you said, the landscape is so different. I think it's still important to hold mainstream accountable when they get it wrong um, because we're seeing so many mainstream brands come into the space, which Mm -hmm. is incredible that they are acknowledging us. Mm -hmm. And sure, it's a lucrative market. We're of the wealthiest community in America. So, yeah, I get that. But the unintended consequence, or maybe the intended consequence, is representation of a group of people who desperately need a narrative change in the media and in the mainstream. So I see it as a win all around, but we also need to be careful to educate the mainstream brands that come in so that they know this is a religious garment and it should be treated as such. And, you know, while you're out there trying to get your money, get your money. But talk to our community in the right way. Um, Represent us in a way that aligns with our values. Right. It's almost like they need to be doing it as collaborations instead of doing it on their own because they don't – they just probably don't even have the education around the whole topic to do it properly. Right. And I think they are starting to do that in terms of collaborations of reaching out to the Muslim community. Um, But it has to be a a substantive, um, thorough understanding because our community is incredibly nuanced. Mm -hmm. The way that hijab is worn in one country versus another can be very different because it's dictated by culture. Right. But at the helm of all of that is the religious doctrine that doesn't change no matter what culture you come from. Right. And so there has to be that education. It, it, it's, this isn't something easy. And I don't want that to deter a mainstream brand from coming into our space, but make sure that, you know, that research and development and all of those incredible um, uh, checks and balances that big corporations have in place Mm -hmm. within their companies are doing the research and the due diligence to make sure that they can represent the hijab in the correct way. So, I mean, it seems kind of obvious to me, but I'll just ask you because maybe there's, you know, something else that will come to your mind. But how do you feel like your origin story really impacted the work that you're doing today? And why do you think that it's important for other women to reflect on their own origin stories? Oh, man, there's so many threads. You know, I think from, from a young age, being so cognizant of my race, and of being othered, as you said, make, gave me gave me this passion that set me on a path towards living out my life's purpose. And alongside that was my love for our faith and for the hijab. Thankfully, I mean, I'm so blessed, and I know this isn't an accident, that God put so much love in my heart for the hijab at such a young age. And so many of our Muslim sisters really struggle with it. It's very Mm. hard for them. And I empathize with that so much. And I am so thankful that God, I never had to go through that. I always wore it with confidence. And in fact, I was almost defiant, like, say something, I dare you. (laughs) You know, I had that attitude because I knew my rights as an American. I knew what the Constitution said. I knew I belonged here. I knew that my rights were protected. And um, I've just had that attitude always. I've been, I've always been very confident in who I am. And so the fa- I, 
it's not lost on me that I have this incredible love for hijab and I'm here a thought leader in the space who owns the leading U.S. hijab brand. I That's not lost on me. Yeah. And so our origin stories are so incredibly important because if we don't own them and we don't know who we are, which I believe is the biggest issue amongst our community today, we as Muslims are going through such an identity crisis and such self-hate yeah. because we've been fed this narrative for so long, even pre-9-11, about who we are and where we come from or the color of our skin. My goodness, in the Southeast Asian community in particular, the self-hate that I see as a result of the white colonizers that came in to convince them that they were less than has trickled down into our children born and raised in America. It's so fervent. And without that sense of self and knowing who you are and embracing your identity, there's no way that you'll be able to get to the place where you can identify what I'm meant to do. Because you'll have all this baggage that you still need to unpack and unload before you can ultimately get to that place and say, this is my purpose. This is why I was put on earth. And that work is so immensely important. Melanie, thank you so much for joining me today. This was like an absolutely amazing conversation. I'm so happy to have met you. Thank you. Me too. Thanks, Aurora. This was awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of In Progress, presented by Girl Boss Radio in partnership with Toomey. Look, I hope you're enjoying these conversations just as much as I am. So be sure to tune in to the next episode to hear more incredible origin stories from some of the brightest minds out there. We are all a work in progress, but it's important to remember that we make progress when we take the time to reflect on where we are, where we've been, and where we're going. So... Stay tuned for another incredible origin story in the next episode. And of course, be sure to rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe so you don't miss out on any of these stories. Okay, that's it for now. We'll talk next time.